Hello, people. Welcome to the last Veritas of the spring. What year is this? 2017 semester. You guys made it. Finals are coming, though, so... Uh, no, I'm just kidding. So you and I are immersed in a culture of now. We speed date. We eat fast food. We use the self-checkout lines in grocery stores. We try a one-week diet. We pay extra for overnight shipping. We got a tweet in 140 characters or less, and even that's too much. We send three-and-a-half-second Snapchat videos. A culture of now. I wonder what effect that has on us. Why are we so, why are we so impatient? You know, this culture of now, it's no surprise that uh, we hear stories like this. I read a story about some airplane executives of a well-known airline. They're, they're trying to make changes. They've been getting a lot of complaints from passengers about the wait time at the baggage claim. Anybody fly? Anybody love the wait time at the baggage claim? Yeah. So what they did was they hired more people to get the plane or get the luggage off the plane. I figured that would help, and it worked for a little bit, but the complaints kept coming, and these execs, they did a little research, and they said, okay, here's what's happening. The people are getting off the plane so quickly. They're rushing, they're hurrying, and they're getting to baggage claim, and then they're waiting another seven minutes. So people are hurrying to wait. And so that annoyed them. They complained. And so you know what they did? And really, I guess it is a stroke of genius. They decided to change the layout of the airport entirely. They started moving the baggage claim further away from the gates so that people would have to walk farther. Now, pretty innovative, props to them, but think about all the work it has to take for people to do that, all because people don't want to wait seven minutes. We're not patient people. We're not patient people. I wonder why. I, I'm not patient. Why do, I, why do I honk a half second after the light turns green? It's green. Honk. Green, honk, come on, let's go. Why did I, you know, when I was in seminary and when it was finals week, every semester I'd take my final, and then a couple days later I figured, right, the professor's only grading about 100 papers, he should have mine done. I checked the portal 10 times a day. What's my grade? What's my grade? What's my grade? I can't, I can't wait. You know, we're an impatient people. I think everybody agrees with that, but here's the more important question. Why are we impatient? Why are we impatient? Why do we have a problem waiting, and we think about it, there's, there's several things to say, but I think one of the main reasons is because of our pride. It's because of our pride. You know, pride, it says, I know what's best for me. I know what I want. I know when I want it, and guess what? I want it right now. I want the clothes right now. You can't tell me whatever you think, because it's my life. I want to go out with that person. I want to do this. I want to take up that hobby. I want to take up those classes. You can't tell me, because it's my life, and you know when I want it, I want it right now. Don't tell me that I have to wait for it. That's the last thing that, that I want to do, and if that's you, and if that's me, we've got a serious problem. You know why? We've got a problem, because according to the book of Proverbs, if we want to live a life of wisdom, if we want to live a life faithful in God's eyes, then you know what we have to do? We've got to wait. We've got to wait. Tonight we're going to be looking again just at one proverb. If you have your Bible, you can open it up. It's the book after the Psalms in Proverbs 23, verse 18. Read it on your Bibles or your phones or on the screen behind me. It says, surely there's a future and your hope will not be cut off. So we're wrapping up our series in Proverbs tonight. All most of the semester, we've been figuring out what does it look like to live a life of wisdom. 
Well, tonight we see that life involves, involves waiting. This, this call and this command really to wait, it's all over the Bible. All over the Bible. Psalm 37. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Jesus tells a parable to his disciples. He says, stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Think about the Bible just for a second. There's 27 books in the New Testament. Those are written over a span of about 40 years. There's 39 books in the Old Testament. You know how long it took for those to be written? A couple thousand. When you turn from the book of Genesis on page 580 to 581 to Exodus, that's 400 years. When you get to the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, and you turn the page to the book of Matthew, that's another 400 years. That's a long time. But but okay, what are we waiting for? Let's read that proverb again. Listen for what, what are we actually waiting for? Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. You see, we're waiting. We're waiting for a future. We're waiting for a better end to our story, an ending that's not filled with disappointment, with frustration, with heartache. You see, this proverb reminds us of a truth that God's people throughout the ages, 2,000 years ago, and today in 2017, everybody in this room, myself included, we need to hear, and here it is, better days are coming. Better days are coming, and it's not easy to wait for this. It's very difficult, but again, this struggle, it's nothing new. It's nothing that has not been seen before. You see, in every time, in every place, God's people have had difficulty waiting for those better days. Time and again, it seemed like the evidence is pointing the opposite direction. It seemed hopeless. It seemed like this promise, these better days, would never come. The New Testament book of Hebrews, in chapter 11, the author is speaking about the experience of God's people over many, many years, many generations. This is what he says. There were others, other people, who were tortured. Some faced jeers and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. That's not a magic act. That's real. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. You see, these people, God's people, the ancient Israelites, they had a purpose for their lives. God created the world. It was good. All of it was good. And then Adam and Eve, they ate the fruit. They couldn't wait. They had to take what was theirs and sin entered the world and broke everything. But rather than punt on the earth and create a new one, God said, you know what? I'm going to redeem it. I'm going to restore it. I'm going to keep it. And you know how I'm going to do it? I'm going to do it through a specific person through a specific group of people. They're going to be the agents, the means by which cleanse this earth, rid this earth of sin. I'm going to make life better for people around them. These people, they're going to be my agents of love and justice and mercy to a watching world, to a broken world, to a sinful world. Those people, the ancient Israelites, they were looking forward to a better day, but again, as we just read, things didn't hardly ever go according to the plan. If you know the story, Egypt enslaved these Israelites for 400 years. When you get to the book of First and Second Kings in the Old Testament, it recounts the history of the Israelite monarchy, and it's bad. 
It's bad. King after king after king is unfaithful, commits terrible idolatry. And eventually, the people of Israel, they get overthrown. They get overtaken, ruled by people like Assyria and Persia and Greece and Rome. And yet, as bad as that was, as bad as that was, in every time and in every place, Proverbs 23, 18 still was true. There was always hope for a better day for those who would believe it. And so no matter the hardship, no matter the ruler, no matter the circumstance, no matter what is happening today, Psalm 23, 18, it's a shelter in a storm. Surely there's a future and your hope will not be cut off. I need, I need to hear this. I think you do too, but I for sure need to hear this. And there's two reasons why I think we need to hear this. Here's the first. You and I are tempted to think that those better days, the better future, the hope is here right now. I'm showing my age a little bit. Uh, there's a movie called The Dead Poet Society. Robin Williams is the actor. I see some faces. Thank you, Ross. If nothing else, you got it. Good. So in this scene, he's kind of the new English teacher, shaking things up a little bit, and this is one of his first lessons. Let's go ahead and take a look. Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. Old time is still a-flying. And this same flower that smiles today, tomorrow will be dying. Thank you, Mr. Pitts. Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. The Latin term for that sentiment is carpe diem. Now, who knows what that means? Carpe diem. That sees the day. Very good, Mr. Meeks. Meeks. Another unusual name. Seize the day. Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. Why does the writer use these lines? Because he's in a hurry. No. Ding! Thank you for playing anyway. Because we are food for worms, lads. Because believe it or not, each and every one of us in this room is one day going to stop breathing, turn cold, and die. I'd like you to step forward over here and peruse some of the faces from the past. You've walked past them many times, but I don't think you've really looked at them. They're not that different from you, are they? Haircuts, full of hormones, just like you. Invincible, just like you feel. The world is their oyster. They believe they're destined for great things, just like many of you. Their eyes are full of hope, just like you. Did they wait until it was too late to make from their lives even one iota of what they were capable? Because you see, gentlemen, these boys are now fertilizing daffodils. If you listen real close, you can hear them whisper their legacy to you. Go on, lean in. Listen. You hear it? that to somebody in next class. Just whisper carpe diem in there. That'd be weird amount. Yeah, so seize the day. Make your life 
extraordinary. Maybe a modern day carpe diem is YOLO. Don't we all love that phrase, you only live once? You know, the point being, it's our job to find those better days now. We need to try new experiences. We need to be adventurous. When you come to college, get it all out of your system. Try it all out because then life is coming. That's, that's kind of the, the mantra of the day. It sounds good. You know, it seems right. If Probably maybe a lot of people you know would be nodding their heads. Yeah, sounds good. This guy named Joel Osteen, he wrote a book called Your Best Life Now. Sold over 4 million copies. Here's a quick excerpt. It says, happy, successful individuals have learned how to live their best lives now. They can make the most of the present moment and thereby enhance their future. You can too. No matter where you are, what challenges you're facing, you can enjoy life right now. Today is the only day that we have. You can't do anything about the past, and we don't know what the future holds, but we can live at our full potential right now. That sounds great, but there's just one problem. It's not biblical. It's not biblical. Book of Ecclesiastes, it's an Old Testament book, probably written by King Solomon. He says this, chapter 3, God has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. You see, you and I weren't just meant to live for today. We're meant to live for eternity. When you and I believe that the better days are here and now, we're living for the dot. Here's what I mean. I hope there's a picture behind me. This pretty much describes living for the dot. The dot on the left, my, your left, my right, that's when you're born. And the dot over here, that's when you die. And so it's up to us in between those two dots to get the most out of life. The better days are here and now, and we've got to get them. And so all we can think about is kind of just what's next. We've got the end in mind. The end's coming. We've got to figure out how are we going to get the most out of the semester? How are we going to make the most out of pledgeship? How are we going to get the most out of this relationship? How are we going to get the most out of whatever? But, but here's the deal. We're not meant to live for the dot. We're meant to live for the line. This is the reality. Yes, there's a start. Yes, there's the day where we're going to die. But you know what? That line keeps going. You see, life goes on after the semester. Life goes on after pledgeship, after graduation, after you get married, after you have kids, if you retire, even after you die. You see, we were made for more than this world. Now, this world's hard. Hardships are real. But here's the deal. It's much harder if all we are living for is that dot. And so, thankfully, the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 23, 18, breaks into our lives and reminds us that we were meant to live for more than the dot, that we were meant to live for the line. So if that's one end of the spectrum, let's get the most out of the better days because better days are here. The other end, the better days are a myth. There's no such thing as better days. Now, if you believe this, maybe I can get it. You're a little bit skeptical. You're a little bit cynical because of life experiences. Maybe you're familiar with this. Famous poet, his name's T.S. Eliot. He, uh, he lived in London. He converted to Christianity in 1927. And he was a member of this elite group called the Bloomsbury Group. And there was a woman, her name was Virginia Woolf, well-known author. She was the president, atheist. This is what she said upon hearing about T.S. Eliot's conversion. I have had a most shameful and distressing interview with dear Tom Eliot, who may be called dead to us, dead to us all from this day forward. He's dead. He has become a believer in God and immortality, and he goes to church. I was shocked. A corpse would seem more credible than he is. 
I mean, there's something obscene in a living person sitting by the fire and believing in God. Ouch. So she definitely doesn't believe it. Disappointed, skeptical, cynical. And of course, others of us tend to think this way just because, let's be honest, life, life's hard. Maybe, maybe you've had a really hard life, tragedy after tragedy, and then your friend has a tragedy. Then you read the news. There's just so many things going on in the world. How is it possible to believe in better days when this life is so hard. If you've thought this, if you have friends who think this, if you have family members who think this, professors who think this, you're in good company. The Apostle Paul thought the same thing. He wrote a letter to a, a group of Christians in Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. He says this, For we, that's Paul and the apostles he's with, we do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of the afflictions that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. They wanted life to be over. When they woke up in the morning, they wanted to close their eyes and go right back to bed. They didn't want to get out of bed. They didn't want to keep going. So why? Why did they? What was God trying to show them? Well, let's keep reading. We felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who what? Who raises the dead. Rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. You see, those hardships, they taught Paul a valuable lesson. They taught him the lesson of Proverbs 23, 18, that better days are coming. There's a hope. There's a future. It's not just about the dot, but it's about the line. I wouldn't be surprised at all if, if Paul memorized that verse and was thinking about it as he wrote that verse. Better days are coming. They're not a myth. On January 24th, 1848, a guy named James W. Marshall, he's working at a sawmill in Coloma, California. He's trying to, trying to set up this, this kind of new water-powered sawmill, and he's digging in the dirt and digging a little bit more, digging a little bit more, and all of a sudden he comes across something that changes his life. He found gold. He struck gold. And this, of course, was the start of the, of the famous gold rush in California. It lasted for eight years. Uh, they estimate about $2 billion worth of gold was found. Some 300,000 people, think about that, back in that day, 300,000 people made their way to California to try and find gold. Now, I tell that story because it shows the power that a future promise has on our lives today shows the power of a future promise and how it can change our lives today. I mean, think about that for a second. 300,000 people. They live in other parts of the U.S. They got other jobs, probably have families. They're trying to just make their way through life, and they just get a small whisper, just a hint. Wait a minute, you found what? You found where? Yeah, I'll go there. So think about what they had to do. They couldn't, <laughs> they couldn't ask Siri where to go. Couldn't take Mo X to the airport. They had to, they had to do a lot. They had to, to get all their meals packed. They had to load up their wagons. They had to leave their families. They had to say their goodbyes. Think about all the steps that they did. Why? Because of the promise of gold. If the earthly promise of gold has that much power, what do you think a heavenly promise from our Father can do? What do you think that can do? For the rest of our time, let's talk about four ways that believing in the better days tomorrow will change our lives today. Here's the first way. Believing that promise gives us freedom to fail. Gives us freedom to fail. Maybe you've heard these verses before. I, I say them all the time. Sorry if you're getting bored. You shouldn't. 
uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 12. The king, threatened by foreign armies, he says, we are powerless against this great horde that's coming against us. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. If better days are coming, then we don't have to be perfect. Well, confession here. I don't want your pity. It sounds like I do. I don't. I'm fine. Uh, I bombed my ordination exam. So I'm a pastor at the crossing. What you have to do is you have to take these exams. There's a written exam. There's an oral exam and a smaller committee. And then there's the floor exam in a room about this size with a bunch of pastors and leaders just to make sure that anybody becoming a pastor isn't crazy or a heretic. I don't think that's me. I passed. But here's the deal. I took this smaller exam. It's pretty intense. I had to study for a long, long time, and I passed. Now, if you've studied for a long, long time for something, what do you do the minute you're done? You jump for joy, you go get some good food, and then you know what you do? You forget about 75% of what you just learned, right? That was me. And so about three days, so, so that was that exam. Six weeks later is the exam on the floor. About three days before, I'm like, ah, I better brush up. And I start brushing up, and I go, oh, no. I've forgotten 75% of, of what I remember. So I'm like, well, you know, that's good. Help me out, God. I'll be fine. Whatever. Okay, so first question. The guy's trying to help me out. He throws me a softball, asks me, what's the outline of the book of Romans? If you, can't, if you don't know that, that's fine. It's pretty basic. And I just uh, uh, I rumble, bumble, and stumble my way through the answer. You could see people kind of squirming in their seats. They're nervous for me. I'm starting to sweat, getting pit, pitting out. It's bad. That was just the first question. The exam goes way, way too long. I bomb so many answers. I limp my way to the back because after, after you're done with these things, they ask you to go outside so they can discuss you. Normally one to two people, or normally people would stay out there for one to two minutes. I was out there for 10 to 15 minutes. People were debating left and right. I could see people kind of through the glass, standing up, saying their piece. Oh, it was bad. I found out people later, people had to vouch for me. They had to say, I know that was bad but he's a good guy. He's okay. You should let him in. Somebody even told me this. I'll never forget this. They said, you know what? We cashed a lot of chips for you to pass that exam. <whistles> no pity. I'm fine. I'm here. Here's the point. As far as ordination exams go, I failed big time, but you know what? I'm okay. It's going to be okay. Smarts a little bit, but you know what? I'm believing in a better promise. Fighting too. What's that have to do with you? Well, everything. That means that you guys can fail too. You don't have to be the perfect son or daughter. You don't have to be the perfect student. You don't have to be the perfect boyfriend or girlfriend. You don't have to be the perfect intern. Do you know what this will do? Do you know the freedom this brings? Do you know how much better you're going to do your jobs, your schoolwork, your whatever, when you know that you can fail and it's okay? Remembering better days are coming transforms or it gives us the freedom to fail. Second thing it does is it transforms our relationships. If we believe that we're in charge of making the better days happen, if we're living for the dot, then you know what? It's all about getting what we can now. And every person, every place, every circumstance is a means to an end. You know what that means we are? We're ticks. You know what a tick is? Of course you do. It latches on and it drains you. It's kind of gross, right? They have to have someone else to survive. If that's us, we need the approval and the, and the praise of someone else. They have to be this way for us. We want so badly to be noticed and valued and recognized and told that we're good enough and we crave that in other people. 
I do this all the time. It's my default mode, but I'm a tick if I do that. We're looking in the wrong spot. A guy named Blaise Pascal, he's a 17th century mathematician, theologian. Maybe you've heard this quote. There is a God-shaped vacuum, a God-shaped hole in the heart of every man, every person, which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God the creator, made known through Jesus Christ. No created thing will do. No friend, no mentor, no parent, no person, no change of circumstance, no job, no nothing can fill that God-sized hole in our heart. It can never give us enough. This is a picture. So I Googled certificate of inheritance, and the first thing that came up was one from Nigeria. I don't know why, but here's a Nigerian certificate of inheritance. You can say you've seen that in your life. Don't know the names. We'll call him Mr. G. Here's what this says. Mr. G stands to inherit $1.5 million. Is that what it said? Okay, it's gone. Okay, good. Stands to inherit $1.5 million upon Mr. B's death. Nothing will change that. Mr. G stands to collect $1.5 million no matter what. You know what Proverbs 23, 18 is? It's our certificate of inheritance. It's our promise that nothing is going to change the fact that better days are coming. Do you know what happens in our relationships when we remember that we've got something better? We go from being ticks to being Santa. I know everybody's like, what? You get it, right? What does Santa do? Santa gives presents. He goes from city to chimney to chimney, city to city to country to country. He just gives, and he gives, and he gives. He gives presents. When we remember that better days are coming, we can enter every single relationship with the mentality of what can I do for the other person. We no longer need their approval. We can appreciate who they are, how they're wired, because God made them. We can put up with their annoyances. Maybe we wouldn't be like that, but you know, it's okay. It's not wrong. It's just different. We can even put up with people who are annoying, who frustrate us, and who even hurt us. Here's a true story. I talk about my kids all the time negatively. Let the record show. I love them very dearly. Uh, I have three of them, Adeline, Tyler, and Clayton. This one's about Adeline. She's five and a half. She punched me in the face the other day. I can't make this up. She was doing some very illegal things around the house, earned herself a timeout. She kept doing illegal things. She slammed the chair into the wall. There's two dents in the drywall. I'm going to have to patch the wood. Mouth open, Hannah. Thank you. Yes. That's what I thought, too. I said, Adeline, please don't do it again. She screamed. She yelled. She kicked. She earned a spanking. Sorry. Don't want to do it. Have to do it. Spanked her. In her rage, she just hauls back and punches me right in the face. <laughs> As to... How do you love people who literally punch you in the face? Hopefully no one's doing that to you. Lord, how? How do you do that? 2 Corinthians 1. Lord, help me. I need this verse. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3. Here's how you love people who hurt you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Catch this. Here we go. He comforts us in all our affliction. Why does he do that? so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. How? Well, with the comfort by which we ourselves are comforted by God. So God is comforting us. He's pouring into us. We are now overflowing, and then out of that overflow, we can comfort other people. It's like we're an iPhone that's plugged into the wall. It's like we're a car with a full tank of gas, always. We're Santa. 
can give and we can give and we can give because of God and his promise that better days are coming. Not only does it transform our relationships, but it helps us suffer well. Helps us suffer well. James 1, verse 12, blessed is the one who remains steadfast under trial. For when they have stood the test, they will receive the crown of life. Did you know that God knows what you're going through? God knows the suffering. God knows the hardship. Maybe tell yourself that. He knows. You're not there by accident, but by appointment. He knows the anxiety. He knows about the depression. He knows about the sickness. He knows about the loneliness. He knows about what is being said about you behind your back and how much it hurts. He knows. If we're living for the dot and it's all about getting our happiness, you know what those sufferings will do to us? They will make us bitter. They will make us resentful. And they will ask, get ourselves to ask, why me? Why me? God, what is happening to me? Why is this going on? But if we're living for the line, if we're living for eternity, we start asking what for? God, what's this for? I don't know why it's here, but I trust you got a better promise for me. And so rather than why me, I'd like to know, but if I don't, it's okay. What for? What's this for? Read a a news story a couple days ago about a boy, a little boy named Anson Hui. Anson is 11 years old. At the age of three, he was diagnosed with glycogen storage disease. So his body can't break down uh, any sort of sugars or store them. And so he has to drink raw cornstarch all day. When he sleeps, he's got a, a surgical implant in his stomach that helps him uh, get food. At the age of five, doctors thought he had autism because he could barely speak. He could only speak in about three words at a time. And so it's no surprise, particularly after he's been bullied by people in the schoolyard, it's no surprise that Anson starts asking the question, why me, God? Why am I going through all this? Why do I have to eat cornstarch every day? Why can't my body break down these sugars? Understandable. But you know what else happened? Anson also discovered he had a gift. He discovered that while everybody else was talking, he was listening. He was listening to words. He was listening to sounds. He was listening to everything. And he turns out, this sounds pretty cool. I wish I knew more about this. He developed the amazing gift of perfect pitch. So he could memorize and master complex piano pieces with astounding accuracy and proficiency. So much so that he's been able to play at Carnegie Hall. And he wins a lot of awards. It's really cool. His trials and his gifts led him to say this in this interview. It's what he said. I can't decide many things that God has already planned but I can still choose to work on my dream because I still have workable hands and a body to do it. I believe every single life is unique and special. Each has its own mission and purpose. What for? Not why me. See, Anson, he's suffering well and he's fighting to live for that line because of Proverbs twenty three eighteen. because he knows that there's a hope of a better day. You and I were no different. We can suffer well too. Last one, because better days are coming, it helps us to fight sin today. First Peter 1, catch, catch the Apostle Peter's logic here, okay. It says, therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, great. Well, what now? Well, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. So look forward to what's coming, but in the meantime, be holy. How does that work? 
How do you do that? Well, here's how. Nobody sins out of duty. Nobody wakes up and goes, oh, gosh, what should I do today? Oh, my sin. I guess I guess I have to. I got a quota. Let me just go sin. No. Everybody sins because they want to. And you know why? Because sin makes promises too. God makes promises too. Sin makes promises too. But here's the difference. Sin always overpromises and underdelivers. It always overpromises and underdelivers. So the key to fighting sin, it's not so much to say no to sin, although that's important. The key is to say yes to a better promise. Say yes to God. If I told you I'd give you 100 bucks at the end of the day or $100,000 at the end of the month, duh. No brainer. Now, It'd be a hard month, maybe, especially if a lot of your friends chose the $100 a day. Everybody's spending it. You're not doing anything. You're staying at home. What's going to get you through that month? You know what's coming. You got $100,000 coming at the end of the month. You know something better is on the way in the exact same way. We can fight sin today because we know something better is coming. How do you think this could change your summer? How could this change your summer? What promises are going to be made to you? Is it falling back into old habits back home? Are there going to be promises made by old friend groups from high school that maybe aren't the best influence? Are you going to have greater freedom and maybe make some bad choices, choices that you know you'll regret later? What about our sexual purity, guys and girls? What does this have to say with that, let me just state the obvious here. Promises of sexual gratification and pleasure, they're powerful. That's by design. Sex is a good thing. It's a powerful thing. They're powerful. It's hard to fight. And it's so much harder to fight because there's so many voices in our culture that say it's fine. You're waiting to do what? You're waiting to have sex until marriage between a man and a woman? What? You're going you're gonna to be cast out as the weirdo. You're the minority. It's even harder because more and more voices... They're getting louder and more influential of saying, you know what, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, as long as everybody says, yes, what's the big deal? That's, that's, the, that's what we're up against. That's what we are fighting against. Fighting this fight means that we're in the minority. But remember, remember, we got $100,000 coming at the end of the month. If we are indulging consistently and gratifying consistently, we're settling for 100 bucks. There's something much better. It's worth it to wait. It's worth it to be pure. I don't say this flippantly because I know a lot of you in this room have a hard road and are fighting. Well, and that's good. Just remember, there's a better day coming. There's a better promise coming. Surely there's a future and your hope will not be cut off. As the worship team comes up, I just want to end our time tonight and really the, the semester by reading a passage of scripture. You know, if you've been a Christian for a while, hopefully you are familiar. If you're not, I'm, I'm glad you're listening to it. It's a passage of scripture that actually describes these better days a little bit. I've been a little bit vague. But here's a passage that describes what they're like. It's at the end of the story, Revelation 21. Here's the better days. Then I saw a new heaven. And a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, 
and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Better days are coming. Let's believe this. Let's pray. Jesus, I confess my own impatience. I want what I want when I want it. I'm prideful. We need your help, God. We need you to open our eyes to the better promise. We need to remind it, be reminded again and again that surely there's a future and our hope will not be cut off. Will that change the way that we live today? 